I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. In today's gorgeous episode, I got to have one of my childhood idols and present day friends on the show. Johnny Bowden. Johnny is, uh, I picked up one of his books. He had this series of books, 150 healthiest fill in the blank. And um, he's done he's done several of them. And also the 100 healthiest and various different kind of names like that. Um, I picked, started picking his books up when I was like 14 years old and just starting to get into personal training and movement and uh, figuring this health thing out. So pretty amazing to get to now spend some time hanging with the guy and going into all sorts of weird interesting stories of his past and present and um, really good conversation Johnny's got a PhD in psychology. Um, he's best-selling author. He's written for freaking everybody. Um, he's been featured all over the place, and he has uh, got a really interesting, somewhat checkered history as well. So this conversation goes through all those different layers. Uh, hope you guys enjoy. Here's a little clip. And all of a sudden, you see there's a whole other narrative to what that table is. And there's a history to it. How did it get there? And whose people made the design and which it became based? And, it, and you, you see eternities in the most mundane things that you look at. Thank you so much for tuning in to the website. If you are called, it is under the URL, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge, which breaks down the fundamentals that everybody needs to know in order to move therapeutically, move well every moment of the day. We always have an option to move better or move worse. We just don't have the education. So this starts that process of educating ourselves on how to move better. Uh, you can also grab the show notes and uh, we got a blog on there. Recently started a hanging protocol for people who have any kind of shoulder mobility issues. You can jump on there and start the hanging protocol. A lot of people have already gotten that thing underway and I had a lot of good feedback on it. So if you guys check that out, I hope you dig it. Um, thank you so much for any folks that leave reviews. If you leave a review and we read your review, like I'm about to do, we'll send you out a box of something from Organifi, uh, some superfood or protein or what have you. And uh, also, if you use the line code, you'll get 20% off your purchase. All right, this review comes from Amy in Albuquerque. Great one-stop shop for information. Dot, dot, dot. There might be more to it than that, but I can't see because the dots. As a lover of all things health, wellness, and fitness, the Align Podcast is a great one-stop shop for information on everything from physical well-being and functional movement to plant medicine and the psychological human experience. She goes on and says more beautiful things. Thank you, Amy. Send us a message at Align Podcast on uh, Instagram or at Align Band on Instagram, where we post up videos on how to utilize resistance bands and uh, 
other tools too for self-care, movement, all that stuff. Final thank you to those of you that have bookmarked our Amazon affiliate link. When you buy crap on Amazon, uh, we get a small percentage of that purchase, costs you nothing, and really appreciate that here. Um, so on the top right sidebar of the podcast page, linetherapy.com slash podcast. All right, here we go. This was recorded in Johnny's backyard, and um, I really value this conversation. I hope you guys dig it. Back to the shizzy with the legend, Johnny Bowden. Align podcast. Underpants is about the least sexy term that you could have. It's pretty close to the it's not, most it's least. Not, <laughs> right. It's not sexy. No. Um, so we're recording. Podcast starts. And we don't, we don't we do the introduction at? and okay. all that stuff. The okay. introduction happens in the beginning. Right. In the intro. Right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I don't like to, it's always, it'd be a funny thing to like welcome you to your backyard or. It would be. It would, <laughs> it would just be awkward. I, right. Yeah. Well, I can welcome them to my backyard. Yeah, you could do that. Welcome to my backyard. Welcome to Johnny's backyard. Um, thanks so much for doing this, ma'am. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. In this surreal kind of setup where I'm looking at you, but I'm hearing this disemboweled voice. (laughs) (laughs) So this place, this place is really rad. This is like, uh, kind of like, uh, tell me about this place. How long have you been here? I've been here 11 years. Cool. Rad. And it's, uh, I love where I live and I think that's a big part of why I'm happy. Yeah. What are some pieces of your home that you find relevant to keeping you happy and keeping you healthy? That it looks like a treehouse. Yeah, it feels like a like an adult. That I can fort. sit out here in, in and look at nothing but trees and greenery, and in my little treehouse outside my office, which just looks on, over the same stuff. Yeah, it's. It's just a piece of... I don't know why anybody would want more than that in life. Yeah. I've been to incredible homes in Malibu. In multi, multi, beyond belief homes in the Hamptons and stuff. I don't think they make me one bit happier than this. Yeah. Bring this guy a little closer to your face. It's, it's not this, a, would that a, be a, this? Yeah. Okay, get, cool. her, get her up in there. I haven't said anything profound yet anyway. So. <laughs> well, sometimes the, the pearls are in the... Is in this the good? Parts. Yeah, it's perfect. Good? Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. So it's been a long road getting you here. I used to read your stuff. I told you, your the, the 150 books. 150, what is it? Top Cures and Healthiest Foods. And this is a series of them. Yeah. yeah, the series of them. So that was... I need to like just have a moment and thank you. That was... So I was like... 13, 14, just getting into fitness and movement and started on personal training and stuff. And that mm-hmm. was kind of, those books were kind of like, like Bibles of mine. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. It's the amazing. The 50 Healthiest <laughs> Foods just had a 10th anniversary edition. Yeah. If you don't have it, I'll give it to you. Yeah, please, yeah. man. Yeah. But we revi- I revised a lot of stuff. I added a lot of stuff. I, it, it, it's expanded. I updated a lot of stuff and it got it. It's been out 10 years. Yeah. And you <laughs> had, amazing. what brought you towards this healthy stuff? Because you have kind of like a checkered, checkered history. A checkered with, history, with, you with, could with, say, with, with, with health, health. Yeah. <laughs> with reality. With the health, with, health. with reality. <laughs> I like that. That's, with that reality. It's very thing. common these days. Um, yeah. yeah. To have a, checkered, yeah. Uh, a mixed uh, relationship with reality. Well, I, you know, this was a second career for me. I was a musician. I was a pianist and conductor. I did lots of off-Broadway, jazz, R&B, pop, stuff like that, not classical. And I wound up doing a lot of Broadway or off-Broadway or theater-type things. And I smoked. I was overweight. Mm -hmm. I 
at one point in my life was probably addicted to every drug that's in the the PDR, which is the physician's desk reference of every drug that's ever been made. It's a big 700-page thing that every doctor has. I probably went through most of those. Mm. And um, so I was not, you know, I was not a, a healthy, you know, I was not a modicum of, of, of vibrant health. Mm. And I remember being on the road, actually at um, Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut, and doing a show, and the boredom of these things in the daytime, when you're set up and you're in town and you're doing a tour, you're just working at night, there's in, in crushing, there's nothing to do. And the actors all stay in shape. So they all lift weights and they all do all this stuff that is completely foreign to me, while I sit there and smoke and you know wake up at 11 in the morning and do the things that one who came from sex, drugs, and rock and roll in Woodstock you would expect to do. And out of sheer boy, I always uh, had an attraction to physical fitness and health, but I, you know, sort of from afar, like, wow, that's a really interesting thing that I admire the people who pursue that as I'm smoking my cigarettes. And, um, but I asked them to teach me some of this shit. And I said, you know, how do you do this, this weight stuff? What does it do? And how do you, and really long story short, I, I got very hooked and I saw such profound changes in my energy and I lost weight and I felt, I mean, just, it was, I became very zealous about this stuff. And, very, and shortly, it took a couple of years because I wasn't one of those guys that like had an epiphany and then changed their life. I was one of those guys as I went to the gym, I'd do a set or two and then I'd go out and have a cigarette break. So it was a transition. Right. <laughs> it didn't, you know, it wasn't all at once. It's like a French style of working out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, uh, my point was just that it wasn't like, you know, one day I just threw away my crutches and I went on this. Um, I, it was a slow transformation of learning to eat differently and learning to, you know, pay attention to things I hadn't paid attention to. And, and I was drug free at the time, you know, so the, it was a transformation that I then wanted to share with people. What do you attribute the, the drug use to? Or the addiction in general it doesn't need to be the drug use, or the addiction. You know, if I had the answer to that, I think I. Th I mean, addiction is so multifactorial. It, it, it's caused by so many. It doesn't have one cause. There's so many things. There's biochemistry. There's genes. There's environment. There's culture. There's neuroticism. There's there's probably a, a, a list of eight thousand needs that if they intersect in a certain way, this person and and then the environment offers the opportunity. Yeah. That it's just, a, it's a tinderpot. I mean, it's just going to go up. So, I mean, um, I think I had a, enough of the classic traits of like, you know, um, neuroticism and, and um, obsessivism and obsessive compulsivism and perfectionism and artistic temperament. I was a musician and I, you know, um, and exposure because I was a jazz musician and there was no one in the jazz. This is actually interesting. There's no, jazz is probably the only field in the world in which every hero, if they had a Hall of Famer thing, every one of them was a heroin addict. Mm. It's probably the only field in the world where you could say that heroin or, or you know. Wow. You know, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, you know, the, the Hall of Famers, the Babe Ruths of jazz. So it was very much in my environment, very available, um, almost a rite of passage. And I was temperamentally, you know, fucked up enough that I go, well, that sounds like a good idea. And always, and to me, we, we actually talked about this offline before we started the, the podcast about whether or not drugs were always a, a kind of escape and whether they were, I, you said some of them are more spiritual and some of them are more, and I said to, I said to you, for me, they were all spiritual. Right. 
even the most escapist ones. I remember being stoned out on heroin in a, in a shooting gallery in Harlem and feeling kinship. And right. wow, like we're all, we've got this universe that we can barely see through, but we're all, it's like you, it's an oceanic feeling. Of, so it always had a spiritual thing for me. It's just that the cost is, is kind of, it's kind of a high price tag. Yeah. So try oceanic to, try to get that. That's a Freudian, Freudian term. Yeah. Is that something, were you, during that time frame, were you reading in, was that, was that Thoreau or Freud or who, who came up with the oceanic feeling thing? That was Freud. That was Freud. Were you exploring when you were, you using the drugs back in the, how long ago was this this is i started drugs maybe when i was eight somewhere between 17 and 19. young were you exploring well, it's young for then yeah right but well, now yeah. i mean <laughs> yeah and were you were you reading at that time were you learning about freud and oceanic feelings or were you kind of just in the barracks was always i was interested in psychology from the time i was in late teens so i read a lot of freud and then yeah. took a bunch of psych courses and i ultimately got a master's in psychology after my after my bachelor's in music so you're just interested in your brain your psychology and what the hell's going I on i am there. interested in well you were are yeah 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 humans are really interesting creatures yeah and then did you end up, was it, was it during that time frame where you were kind of just like throwing stuff at the wall or were you, did you kind of go from one substance and then get off of that and then like liberate yourself and then find yourself in another I think, one? Um, no, I think, I think alcohol was, was kind of the, in, the entry drug to escape it, you know, to escape anything and to like go into oblivion. Right. It had a lot of downsides. I think I discovered heroin maybe in early 20s and when I was really in with the jazz group and, and of aspiring New York jazz musicians and, and their heroes, some of whom were, you know, pretty big names. And in that clique, it was around a lot. Hmm. And so trying it was not... Um, it wouldn't have been that unusual in that circumstance. With the spiritual part of it, what do you think you gained from those experiences? Collectively in my life with all my experience with drugs of all kinds or at that time? Either. Well, let's take LSD. We yeah. talked about that a bit because yeah. I was very much around during the LSD years. and um, I was actually at Juilliard and I was living in Manhattan. And LSD became this huge thing. Timothy Leary was at Harvard, and the guy who later became Baba Ramdas, the psychology professor, they were up there, and they were using it for things. And, of course, it became a, a thing in the hippies in late 60s, early 70s, and was around a lot. And I, I did it a lot. And I think... The mo I think the, the, if I had a takeaway message from those 70-something trips that I took on, yeah. on acid... It was how easily our, the world could fragment into so many different narratives that we we kind of lived in one. And this is a chair, and this is a table, and mm. and democracy is an ideal, and and there is a you know whatever they were, they're narratives that we all. And what happens in in LSD is it's sort of like the digitalization of this, and just everything goes into fragments. And you see these fragments, but they're floating around, and you can put them together in different combinations. And all of a sudden, you see there's a whole other narrative to what that table is, and there's a history to it. How did it get there? And whose mm. people made the design in which it became based? And it and you. You see eternities in the most mundane things that you look at. Right. 
And and you literally, it's like the. I remember hearing a saying once in school about like if you understand things, the entire world can be understood by a grain of sand. The the idea being that in in with the right focus, and you can look at stuff that's that's very um, mundane, and yet it can it can appear to you to have a global, spiritual, eternal mm. importance in this in this rearrangement of of molecules that lsd scatters your brain into doing oh, and so when you come back to reality you have a different appreciation of it because you realize it was just we all kind of agreed on this reality but i got 10 more for you that could be just as well yeah. we could have agreed on yeah you ever heard of the book the prophet oh that was when i was growing up that's how we got laid <laughs> Street the prophet, prophet are you out kidding? We gave that's what the if if girls in NYU were reading the prophet, it was like a kind of a sign that you know they were more oh, open. Good. They're into it. That's good. Oh wow! Well. For me, it was exactly. if they smoked cigarettes. It was if what? If they smoked cigarettes oh, in like high school, well, if, they if they girls smoked cigarettes, smoked cigarettes and they read the and prophet, they read the <laughs> game on, game on. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I'm like obsessed with that. If anybody's following the the Instagram, I'm, I, I'll put passages of that like probably an prophet? excessive amount of times. Yeah. Um, and but one of the things that he gets into in there was uh, we all start out. They he calls it like um, oh this is actually Paul Selig. I'm kind of I'm kind of putting. Do you know Paul Selig? He's a channel. Mm -hmm. You are you familiar? Oh man. Oh we got we got we got to check that out too. Mm -hmm. But. I'm kind of combining things. Paul Selig, he calls it uh, the Christ self. And this is, he's a channel. He gets into these guides that he speaks to and they, they, they tell him like the, the secrets of the universe. Mm -hmm. So we all start off as this Christ self and we all move through the world with this Christ self, which is like your essence. Mm -hmm. And then at some point we're lied to and we believe these lies that you're not good enough or that you, you know, you need to work for your validation and all, all these different things. And we kind of get, <laughs> stuck in that pattern and then we just repeat that pattern over and over again throughout our lives just standing right beside that our deeper essence mm -hmm. but never actually acknowledging it mm -hmm. and it almost feels like some of those substances like an lsd or mushrooms or meditation or dance or fucking whatever mm -hmm. it starts to kind of tap us back back I, into I, that. I would agree with that yeah i've started meditation six months ago and that that would be my experience with that How's meditation compared to the this, heydays with the LSDs and all that? This is the thing with meditation. I want to tell everybody out there who's, who listens and thinks like I did, I could never do that. I can't quiet my mind. I can't make it work. Yeah. Because that's why I never did it. Um, it is like working out. Like the first time right. you decided to lose weight and get fit and you went to the gym, nobody noticed, including you. You didn't see any difference. And then maybe six months down the road, people started saying, "Did you get a? Did you lose some weight? Yeah. Did you? Get, are you working out your muscle? It starts to show. That's totally what happened for me with meditation. I thought, what is this shit? I can't do it. I can't keep my. No, I'm not doing it right. My mind is writing scripts. I'm writing articles in my head. I'm having conversations with people. I'm arguing with my girlfriend. I'm having the entire, you know, pinter plays are going on up there in my brain, and this can't be right." And I kept at it for, I started in July, so this is what, February? Um, it totally feels like after you've been working, you start to see results. I am completely seeing translatable effects in my life from mm. that, of the direction you were talking about. What kind of meditation practice are you doing? TM. Oh, you are? Mm. 
Did you get the whole? Mm -hmm. Did you, so? What's the? Can you break? Because so I think the probably the the boundary for most people is just that it's it's expensive. expensive yeah. yeah. Can you? Can we kind of highlight some of the? Can we kind of save people some money and get into? Or, or is that well, not this possible? Well, the thing for me that made this completely work. There's eight thousand types of meditation, and apparently they all work. And they're all, and most of them are free, and they're online. So yes, people would say, well, why? The, why would you pay right. to learn this? Um. For me, because I had so much trouble doing it, and I couldn't believe it would possibly be right if I'm thinking of other things, and I don't know how to quiet the mind, and I don't really know what they're talking about, and when they say think of it, I would have not continued. I would have tried it, been sure I was doing it wrong. If I didn't have feedback and a teacher and an environment like that to do it with, I would have given up on it. Mm. Them actually explaining it, then everybody came in and they had questions and we all had the same questions. And they said, you know, well, we all thought we were doing it wrong. And they just continued. To, it's so easy. You can't do it wrong. And that reassurance and that group thing, and they give you your mantra and it's sort of a little, a little bit of a ritual and it's only for you and you keep it and it, that's your word and has an energy of, of, you know, a little of that's mystical, so what. But Do you not speak it in public ways it, like no. this? No, Michelle no. and I don't even know our own, uh, each other's mantras. Oh, wow. But w that's what you focus on and that's, you know, and having it taught that way to me was worth whatever it costs to, to, you know, it's not that expensive. They do it on a sliding scale. It's not like a profit-hungry thing, you know. It's I mean, they do scholarships and stuff. But the one-on-one -on -one attention for me got me past the my ADD-ness, which would have abandoned ship on anything meditation yeah. a long time without the individual instructions. That's why. I found meditation to be kind of almost like, you know when you train a dog to, to live in its kennel? Mm -hmm. And at first it's a pain in the ass, but then they start to really they like love the kennel? It. I find meditation to be kind of like that, where it, that's a really good point. I just came up with that shit right now. You brought it. You're, it you, it's you brought actually it the true. It's these dogs here. I, I think is why. I'm I serious. used to look at that time. You know, it's twenty minutes twice a day, and I don't always. I sometimes I did five minutes today, but most of the time I yeah. do twenty minutes. I always do twice a day, even if it's to, to keep the ritual of it. But in the beginning, it was like, do I have to fucking do this? Yep. This is the most boring, you know. And and then exactly what it, it took about six months until I actually, I really miss it if I don't do it. Mm -hmm. Six months is a long time for a lot of people as far as and like so a selling point. For me too, but point. I had already been sold on the be The benefits of it, if you read the research on it, or you just read about the research, you don't have to like be a postdoc and get into this, but there's a lot of very good popular translations of the scientific research on this. It's so overwhelming. There's no negatives. It's so uh, what they call robust data that just holds up in study after study that I was already convinced it was good. The question was, could I do it? Yeah. I didn't have to be convinced that it was a great thing. It lowers, but I mean, all of the, the studies of this since, at least since 1972, and they're uniformly positive. Is that... That's Your my phone? That was one of mine. Okay. I was going to say, that couldn't be me. Sorry about that. Not to put it on you or anything. That's actually good, because this, for some reason, I think this wire is bumping up against your collar. It's not bumping the thing. Yeah. The actual mic isn't bumping, but the, there's okay. a little, like, rubbing that's happening back there. I don't know what the deal is. You can hear it through the headphones, right? Uh, uh, no. Oh, really? doesn't bother me. Maybe. I'm like a, I'm like a basset hound with these with these things. If I hear any little sound, I'm like, oh, God. I mean, I basset hounds, they're smellers. They're not hears. They're, the, mean, ones like an the, owl? they're the ones What hears the... well? What critters hear well? Basset hound, that didn't make any sense. That was terrible. No, they're, they're scent dogs. <laughs> right. right. I don't know. You know. Lucy is a, is a uh, 
She's a year. Yeah. Oh, good. Like All right. So it kind of made sense. It worked. It worked yeah. out. More channeling, more more dog stuff here. <laughs> um, so six months. What's what kind of benefits do you did you and see much from calmer. it? Yeah. And I get. I used. To, I'm not used to. I I have a tendency to get very activated over petty, dumb, stupid shit like talking to Tom Time Warner. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Little daily, you know irritants of incompetence or stupidity or not caring just would drive me into paroxysms of rage. I mean, I would get, I would easily be, if you've ever sat on, on hold with the Time Warner person, you, I mean, you know how you, and some personality types are very activated by that. Yeah. I was one of, I'm one of them. And that's one tiny area where I can see a black and white difference. I, now, you know, the password doesn't work, the return didn't go through at Amazon, you know, things that used to, like, be agonizing battles for, right. for, for my sanity on the phone with these people have become effortless. And I wait. If I have to be on hold a couple minutes, they come on. I'm not, I'm not pissed off and angry, so they're much nicer, and they help, and I get these things resolved. And it's a, it sounds like a small thing, but going through the day where things don't look so much like problems, but they look more like puzzles. Mm. So a puzzle, as Quincy Jones, greatest Good. quote ever, Quincy Jones once said, a puzzle I can solve, a problem stresses me the fuck out. Right. <laughs> so if you start to see the things that were constant problems in your life, is oh, this is a puzzle. I wonder why, they're why Apple isn't recognizing my Gmail um, password today. Well, I'll have to figure it out. Let's do a little investigating. That's a whole different way than like, I've got this problem now. I'm, I can't get into my computer. Yeah. So looking at things a little bit more as solvable puzzles rather than as monumental problems was a, was a very big direction of what I see the benefits. That's kind of like the whole idea of like the, the Christ self is it's always right there with you. You mm -hmm. know, like that, 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 that deeper, more reasonable grounded version of you, it's always sitting right there with you. It's just usually the quieter person at the dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right. like the drunk asshole is the one that's right. like running right. the show. There's like, if yeah. you just kind of tune into that quieter part, it's usually like, oh, there's, they're there. But they're, that's a hard part <laughs> to get in tune with. This is what world-class athletes do. I am a fanatic amateur tennis player, which means I have all the bad things of tennis players and none of the skill set <laughs> right. of the pros. And we get, it's the story of every amateur player in the three to four level range. Um, we have very good shots, and we cannot put them into practice in games because stress, nervousness, anxiousness, mm. chatter, the inability to find calm is eludes the amateur athlete, athlete at least in this sport, it does. So, you know, people get a, a per perfect shot, and they get so excited, and they overhit it, and they get mad. I mean, because there isn't an inner calm. Yeah. That inner calm is what professional athletes have they're, they're used to being under that kind of stress i watched a, a slow motion once of kobe bryant nail on the back a basketball it was the most interesting illustration of, of what i think we're talking about yeah the every guy and these guys are six foot seven they're chasing him down the thing there's stress and there's a champion whatever it is and they are piling on this guy and he floats in and at the moment that he lets the ball it is just like that like it's just limp wrist there's no tension in it and he just drops it mm. it's being able to be calm in the face of that stuff that's what the masters know yeah. how to do it's not the keys that you're hitting but the keys that you don't hit 
Yeah, that's very well said. Yeah, I didn't make. Did you make that up? I don't think so. I don't don't think I made anything. (laughs) I repeat other people's quotes all the time. I wonder how nutrition plays a role in this whole stress issue. Is there some type of bridge between, uh, you know, so your recent book is about fat and good fats, you know, and cellular function and membranes and. Are you are you asking a rhetorical question to stimulate the? Okay, yeah. You know the answer. No, I don't know. No, no. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is this is this is the thing that people like you and I have been trying have been trying to teach for many many years, which is that nutrition influences everything, not some things, not just the brain or just the heart or just the libido or just the everything. When I talk to executives, this is a hard lift for them to know that like how they eat. All they want to know is how to perform better, how to get higher up in the sales ladder, how to make more sales, more real estate deals, more. I mean, it's very, very performance oriented. And it is a real life lesson for them to learn that what they put into their body actually influences how they perform. So how does nutrition influence this? It influences stress. It influences hormones. It influences our sex drives. It influences absolutely everything. Wanted to take a quick break and thank our sponsor, Organifi, for supporting the show. Organifi is a rad company. I utilize their superfood blends on a daily basis. Um, holding in my hands the green juice right now, filled with all the green powders your little heart could desire, from uh, wheatgrass to spirulina to chlorella to matcha. Really excellent stuff. Highly recommend checking them out. They also do protein blends that are vegan, as far as I can see. So the protein they're using in here is pea protein, quinoa protein, and pumpkin seed protein. Everything's organic. Everything's delicious. Highly recommend checking them out. So go Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com and utilize the Align code for 20% off. Organifi.com, Align code, A-L-I-G-N, 20% off. Get that stuff. Thank you guys so much for tuning in back to the show. Pow. How about the fat conversation specifically? In relation to stress, in relation to, say, inflammation, so when we have stress, we experience inflammation through our bodies and and our brains as well. They see depression is correlated with inflammation around the brain and the rest of the body, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's all these different cognitive, more cerebral type approaches like meditation or things of that nature. Um, And then there's what we put in our face. You know, it's always this tandem orchestra dance that Mm -hmm. we're doing. What about fat? Fat's been kind of like... We've talked about this a lot in the podcast, too, so people are smart, but... Fat can be toxic or fat can be clean. It can be extraordinarily healthy or it can be extraordinarily bad for you. Mm. It's, it's, um, we have, the biggest mistake we've made as as a society is, is, is classifying fat in a really stupid way. Good fat and bad, animal fats versus vegetable fats is the stupidest dichotomy you could possibly make. Right. It has nothing to do with the quality of the fat, the value of the fat, the nutritional benefits of the fat, nothing. Right. So some of these dichotomies, you know, we talk in, in that book that you mentioned, Smart Fat, we talked about um, toxic fat and, and, and non-fat, and, and it does not break down into animal uh, it, take take some of the highly touted vegetable oils that 
are vegetable fats, and they're so good for. They're hugely high in omega six, which is a pro-inflammatory. When it's out of balance with omega, which omega three, which is the anti-inflammatory fat, then it, it creates much more. They're pro-inflammatory fats. They oxidize very easily. They've been processed within an inch of their life. There's no nutrients left in them, but they're vegetable oils. They suck. They're terrible for you. Mm. And yet, on the other hand, a saturated fat like coconut oil or Malaysian palm oil or um, the saturated, the small amount of saturated fat that's in beef, which is by the way, mostly monounsaturated fat, the same fat that's found in olive oil. But the saturated fat found in grass-fed beef is a very healthy fat. So is the saturated fat in coconut oil and palm oil. So it's this breakdown of saturated's bad and polyunsaturated is good. These bad dichotomies are what got us all screwed up about fat in the first place. You should ask one question and one question only about fat. Is it toxic or is it clean? And maybe a second. Is it inflammatory or anti-inflammatory? That's all. doesn't matter if it's saturated. doesn't matter if it's of animal. What matters when it's of animal origin is what's the health of the animal. Right. Yeah. That's what matters, not if it came from an animal. Right. If it comes from an animal that's never been fed a steroid, an antibiotic, a hormone, or the sprays on grains that they weren't supposed to eat, or the antibiotics to get rid of the acid stomach from the grains that they weren't supposed to eat, and they have been fed their natural diet of pasture and grass and organically bred without grain feed, I don't care how fat, I don't care if it's 50% fat, I'll eat it. But if it's factory farmed animals with hormones and steroids and antibiotics and grain fed and high omega six and I ate the low fat kind or not at all. Yeah. So it isn't the fat and it isn't whether it, it, it's weird. What's the origin of that? More uh, unoriginal memes. Uh, it's not what you. It's not about what you eat. It's about what you eat ate. Well, you that's know, a big part that of it. Yeah, that's, of, that's know, right. and, and, but that also relates kind of like you're saying. It's it relates into what the plant source that you're eating ate, yeah. <laughs> you know, or what the, what the animal source that you eat. It's, it's just a matter of what, what went into it. And that's kind of some of the deeper questions. I think if it's just, I, mean, I think things are changing. People are starting to ask those Slowly. questions now. Slowly. What about palm oil? I love palm oil. Oh, I've, I've been a spokesperson for, for Malaysian palm oil on television. Oh, great. Many, many times I've gone on and done, there are videos of me on the internet talking about Malaysian palm oil, working with a chef on some recipes with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. Pala Malaysian, you know, first of all, why Malaysian as opposed to another another country? Yeah, please. My reason for liking Malaysian is their environmental controls. And there are places where making palm oil devastates orangutan environments, and Malaysians doesn't. Malaysian has 50% of their forests are protected. Um, they, it's, a very, it's sustainable there, and no animal habitats are hurt, so that's why I like Malaysian. Now let's talk about palm oil itself. Um, it's very high in tocotrienols, which are very protective of the brain, particularly after a stroke, something like that. Mm. Um, it's... it's it's red because of the carotenoids, so there's a lot of vitamin A in it as well. Um, it has a relatively higher smoke point. It's not like you don't want to, if it's unrefined palm oil, like any unrefined oil, the temperature has to be lower. But even the semi-refined or quasi, it's a decent 350, I think it is. You know, so so it stands up to certainly sautéing and stuff like that without um, oxidizing. I like palm oil. How about smoke temp? Is that something that is there's like smoke temp smoke temperature smoke temperature so, so oh that's a big deal yeah that's a big deal I mean, using oils past their 
smoke temperature makes it, even a good oil makes it like toxic. What should people have in their cupboard as far as cooking salad dressing? I think there's a wide range of. I mean, I'm not right. a cook. Masley, my co-author on that, was he took a year and trained its four seasons as a chef. So he oh, cool. wrote his own recipes, and he was very into you know all that stuff. Uh, you know, so I don't really. Co- I, I think extra virgin olive oil, but you shouldn't cook with it, or I don't even heat it. I just drink it or put it on stuff. Um, coconut oil is great. Palm oil is good. Um, I use. Um, just once in a while, a sesame oil or something that is higher in omega-6s is okay. Almond oil is amazing, and avocado oil is probably the king of the unsung heroes in the oil department because it has a smoke point of 500, and it is really good fat. All right. So we got the fat stuff out of the way. Good. The transition... <laughs> <laughs> the transition from being musician and like rocker and born and burning the torch on both ends mm. and all that stuff into Johnny Bowden, the the health, um, whatever. I didn't want to say guru because it's like a, it's a right. backhanded <laughs> compliment. But how was that transition? Um, it was again, how it was, was around... The late 80s, early 90s, and I was. This is when I was talking to the actors on the road about yeah. how to begin to work out. Yeah. And then over the next year or two, I became a bit of a, somewhat of a fanatic about it. I knew that every city we went to, I knew where the gym was, I knew where the health food store They had health food stores in those days, not yeah. the Whole Foods. Right. Um, and being, being an upper middle class, academically oriented Jewish New York kid, the first thing I thought about was. I got to get a degree in this. There's got to be a degree in this that will legitimize my interest in it because middle-class Jewish academically oriented kids who come from those homes need degrees in everything that they do. So I start to think about this. And I already had, I, I think at the time I already had my master's in psychology, but I was working in music. And, um, so I start looking up courses, you know, how to be a personal trainer. And as it has, as it happened, there were several hundred of them. Of course, the, there were the famous ones like ACE and AFA and, and NSM and, and um, American College of Sports Medicine and all of them. They all offered these certifications. So I decided to get a certification as a personal trainer, honestly and truthfully between you and me, because I thought it would really help me date a lot oh, of girls God. because I figured if they, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, this is, I'm thinking, you know, in the playbill, which is what they give out to the theater people when they come to see the, they leave little bios of the conductor or the musician. or the, So my bio would be in there and I thought, how cool would it be to have all his music credits and the shows he's done? And said, oh, he's also a certified personal trainer. That would, I would just be, I'd be, you know, the Bradley Cooper of the musical theater set. So, <laughs> That was part of the motivation. Perfect. But I, I really liked this stuff. And, I, and, and you know, if, if you're learning this back in the late 80s, early 90s, you basically have Muscle and, and Fitness Magazine. And that's pretty much yeah. your source of data, Probably. which we now affectionately call Muscle and Fiction Magazine. But, I mean, that's all we knew. And every article was different. You know, do, do descending reps. No, you should do, you know, uh, 100-set reps. No, you should do right. split training. No, Push-pull. I mean, and no, I and the nutrition information was just over the top insane. So I, I figured there has to be something that's a little bit more to the mind of someone who was raised with 
academic, you know, what's the real science here and what is. So I looked into personal training certifications and I got one. And I, I liked it even more after that. So I thought maybe I'll get another one. So I wound up getting six of them. And um, I still had never worked as a personal trainer, but I had a lot of certifications. Yeah. And it, I live in New York. I lived in New York at the time, 1990. And I'm walking down the street and I see they're opening a new gym. And they're hiring. And I figured, I mean, what, what do I possibly have to lose? So I go into this office that says Equinox. It's on 72nd Street in Amsterdam Avenue. It's the first Equinox that ever opened in New York City. Run by a small Italian family. There was actually three, two twins, brother, sister, and Lavinia, Danny, and, and Vito. And I go in, and I say, well, I'm a personal trainer. I have, <laughs> I have no fucking idea why they hired me. <laughs> um, they hired me. You're the most highly decorated personal trainer that's never actually been a personal <laughs> trainer. <laughs> and I, I walked in. I was on the floor the day they opened on the September Equinox of, of that year. I think it was 1990 or 91. And I stayed with Equinox for seven years. Cool. Equinox probably wasn't Equinox at that point. Huh? Oh, yes. It, well, it was the oh, it first. Was. Then there was a second. Then there was a third. Then there were five. Then but they went to another the, city. But now it's like huge. At and that then they point, sold it, was, it for it was, $250 million. Yeah, right. Crazy. Yeah, but it was one gym. And then they opened a second. And then a lot of us would go and work at the second. And we'd open a third. And we had an Equinox Fitness Training Institute, yeah. which I taught at and stuff at. How's your, your personality changed from an and outlook on fitness and health and wellness and what that means from then to now? Um, that's a very easy question. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> and I think I, I'm going to say that. Um, I don't think my answer is all that different than if you ask this of 10 other people who do what the kind of stuff we do. Yeah. And I know that to be true because I did a summit a couple of years ago in which I interviewed 37 thought leaders, you know, for a summit on fat loss. And these were A-list people and clinicians and they all said what I'm about to tell you. So I know that this is not new with me, but this is how it's changed. Every one of us that ever started this let's just say as a personal trainer, started in weight loss. That's the main, the main drive of people who come to see personal trainers. At least it was then. I think it still is. They want to lose weight. They want to get in shape. And we would talk to them about the specifics of how to do that, how to eat, how to exercise, and we kept it all here. Mm -hmm. The biggest change I think all of us have seen is that after you do that for a few years or a decade... You start seeing and asking different questions. You start asking, why do you want to lose weight in the first place? You start yeah. to see what people's emotional drives are. You start to see how they hold themselves back. You start to see how sleep impacts all of this, how stress impacts it, how digestion impacts all of it, how hormones impact all of it. You start to see that it has nothing fucking to do with calories and number of t minutes on the treadmill, but that it is a complex, multivariate um, enterprise in which psychology and sociology and culture and religion and belief systems and political alliances and relationships all factor into this human being's wellness and we stop getting interested in what their food diary said and we start getting interested in who they are.
Mm. That's the biggest difference. No, no one I know that's been doing this more than 10 years wants to ever look at a food diary again because we know <laughs> it is this small of a piece of the pie of what they're trying to do. Yeah. How do you start to speak to that with working with a client or listeners of a podcast to actually start to access that? Or do you just have to kind of rub, bump your head up against the wall a million times before you finally start to find your heart or whatever the definition would be? I don't think you so much as talk about it or find it or preach it as you, that you live it. Yeah. So, for example, with you, when you were explaining to me offline what this podcast means to you and what the things you're interested in, how you're interested in all these things, and then you like to have an organic conversation that takes you, you do it. You don't say, folks, what we're going to do here <laughs> is we are going to demonstrate interest in a lot of areas that you didn't think we were interested. You just do it. And then all those things start to be interesting and people make the connections. And they go, well, wait, well, why is he talking about, why is Joe Rogan talking about jumping into cold water? Oh, wait, there's a, can oh, I, and they connect the dots. Yeah. So I don't know that you, uh, uh, you know, teaching that as opposed to demonstrating that, I think, are t they're two different things. Mm. You demonstrate it. Yeah. Hmm. The, the most interesting writers to me are, are people who wander all over the friggin' place. Yeah. Mark Manson and, and um, Neil Strauss. I mean, people who, they're, they're not even, I mean, that's not even a great example, but people who's, who have very wide-ranging um, interests that they can draw upon to make connections and analogies and stuff, and you start to see certain universal themes in lots of different arenas. Yeah. And and that's, I think that's what, you're, if you're at, going back to your question, how is my thinking about fitness and health evolved over, it's evolved to incorporate a lot more influences. What about the relevance? Uh, you mentioned psychology. Um, so, for example, we had mentioned some of, you showed up, there was a, a graph. What was the graph that we, that we looked at? Drug damage. Drug damage. And so on the lowest end of that graph was... Psychedelics. Yeah. So it was, it was LSD, it was mushrooms, it was MDMA, things of that nature. And the other side of that graph was alcohol, the methamphetamine. Le the legal stuff. <laughs> no, well, methamphetamines aren't so, so much... No. Well, I guess in, in, in pharmaceutical drugs. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating that these taboo substances seem to have, from what at least the graphs that I've seen and the conversations that I've had, nothing but either neutral or positive effects... Every once in a while, you get kind of like a, a random black swan that's like, ooh, that maybe, maybe, you know, whatever. Um, what is that? I, I think we're like at the beginning of a front. We don't know. I, what we'll know 100 years from now about all this is so different than what we know now. But um, I, it's unexplored territory. You're talking about illegal substances that are just now being explored for possibly medical uses. They can't even get research grants for it yet. I mean, they're having a lot, you know, it's it's a quite a big deal to actually undertake a cannabinoid study, let alone, you know, LSD and stuff like that. And um, there's not a lot of public sympathy. It's still been stigmatized as, you know, marijuana was the jazz, jazz musicians and the darkies. And I mean, there was a whole thing about that. It was very, and there was a lot of racial stuff about that too. And it became stigmatized and it became associated with, um, you know, illegal drugs. They, they have a stigma. Yeah. And so the fact that now psychologists are saying, well, wait a minute, maybe let's not throw the, bath, the baby out with the bathwater. There's some substances here that can actually facilitate processes that are very healing, whether they be psychological and therapy or whether they be uh, 
pain analgesic, as in cannabinoids, and they're starting to look at it. But don't think that it's a big welcoming environment where everyone's going, yeah, let's get the research grants out for psilocybin, because that's not what's happening. So I think knowledge in this is going to be very incremental. And a lot of biohackers are going to probably be leading the way because they're not going to wait for double-blind studies to start self-experimenting, and they're already doing that, as we know. So I think we'll. this is a, a unexplored territory that we will all learn together in. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's getting into some of that, and we'll wrap up here in, in, okay. in 10 minutes or so. you got a, a thing at 1.30. Yeah. Um, one of the things I mentioned in relation to to my kind of exploration of some of these things is is I've experienced um, just say like cannabis for example I'll, I'll notice upon you've using never experienced cannabis <laughs> never never you're will kidding I me do such you? a thing well, I'm just I'm just shocked <laughs> podcast over just, just shocked Johnny's walking walking out the door nodding his head in dismay so uh, but with that something I'll notice certain things it'll kind of point out ways that I'm I'm effing up in my life. You know, I'll notice I'll, oh, I overate again, you know, or, oh, I'm, I showed up late to that thing. Why did I do that? I could have, I could have sorted that out. What was that? You know, and it kind of draws these things out and it's that I think ends up spilling into your fitness and the way that you organize your body, the way that you organize your home, the way that you organize your life. I think it's all interwoven together there. I would add one tiny thing to that. Please. Yeah. Whatever. Um, I think, I don't know that marijuana makes you do that. I think that you are a pretty self-reflective guy. And that what drugs often do is amplify the tendencies we have. I have never been a mean drunk in my life. I'm not a mean guy. I don't get into bar fights. No matter how drunk I get, I'll go the the opposite end. I'll go the sobbing, kind of like whiny, you know. I mean, I'm not going to start a fight. Because that's not in me. So you're self-reflective. You do a lot of soul-searching. You do a lot of internal work. Pot's going to amplify that. Right. I don't think it caused it. That's what. That's yeah. the, the thing I would add to that. Yeah. No, I feel that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get that. What about the... So how can we start to guide ourselves towards that point that all of a sudden the amplification becomes one of betterment as opposed to amplifying bullshit these are pretty big questions yeah i don't know that they're <laughs> drug related questions i mean let's no take, no let's not take necessarily the drug part out of that how yeah, do we yeah. do it with drugs how do we do that in life yeah no that's and that's, that's it. The, probably the the journey of life is to sorting out the stuff that matters from the stuff that doesn't yeah Mark Manson, the guy I mentioned earlier, the writer that wanders all over the place like I like to do and read, you know, wrote a best-selling book. I think it, it's the most cited book on Amazon for three years in a row. I'm not sure, but it's it's got that kind of world record. And it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And it was an international bestseller. And what he basically says in this book, great life lesson. I totally subscribe to this. We humans are giving a fuck machines. We can't not give a fuck about some things. We are wired to care about, like, this is good, this is bad, and we're going to make judgments, and we're judgment-making, meaning-making machines who are always going to give a fuck. We can't turn that off unless you're a Tibetan monk. 
what you can do is choose your battles more carefully. Because those of us that like give, you give a fuck about everything. The guy is taking up too much time on the line at Chevron, and he's causing you to be a minute late. If you give an equal fuck about everything, you're going to be a stressed out, really screwed up, and your fitness and well-being is going to go. Through, you know, so the trick really in life is to. You can't stop giving a fuck, but give a fuck about the things that are worth giving a fuck about. Mm. And that's, I think, the lesson. That, al- that allows your yourself to have compression. Uh, uh, compression in the sense that you can direct that energy towards your workout, towards your nutrition, towards and your relationship. Of course, that stuff takes up psychic space. Yeah. And and I think knowing, I mean, that's been one of the secrets of Michelle's and our eight eight year relationship. Not that that's the long of it, it going on forever, is that we have figured out which bat. Well, we still figure it out, but one of the tasks that we do together is figure out which things are worth fighting for, right. which things are worth worth making issues over. Usually, not that many, and which things you let go. And and negotiating those because if you give a fu- if every fucking thing's an issue, where do you, where do you go with that? So what have, you, what have you let go of? Huh? What have you let go of? Or what yeah, are you? Act- right. What, no, what I'm asking. What what are, what are you letting go of? What have you letting go of? Letting go of? That's not how you say that. <laughs> letting go. <laughs> of. Um, I think the biggest journey for me in terms of letting go has been the attempt to control a lot of stuff. Right. And being okay with someone having an opinion that I know to be that I have thought to be either wrong or, um, I, I had I had let me give you a concrete example I have a inborn need to correct vegans I mean, <laughs> it's like I can't shut my mouth if when they start saying oh and I just and they go into the vegan science and into the vegan alternative facts universe I'm getting much more impassioned than I mean to be in my more calm meditative state but I have a tendency to get into arguments yeah. about that or in politics if someone, you know, has what I consider to be, a, you know, a, a, an alternative universe opinion about the... You know, I've, I've learned that it's not my job to correct everybody. Yeah. That I don't have to control... Even controlling... When I have people over, I'll be very meticulous about what playlist is on Spotify and who's, you know, and this is mood exactly right, this is candlelit. I mean, a little bit more of like, my candle's not lit. Whatever playlist is on, people seem to be liking it. it and it, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but for someone who is running around trying to control a lot of shit, mm-hmm. it's a very big weight off your shoulders that you don't have to control everything. Mm. You don't have to correct everybody. Everybody doesn't have to listen to every opinion that you have, you know, and stuff like that. That's cool. Great, man. Yeah. Anything else we should touch on before wrapping this wrapping this thing up? No, it's been very very uh, fun. Good, very fun. <laughs> uh, so people got to get your get your book. Uh, any one of them is on Amazon. I love it when people buy all of them. Yeah, <laughs> any or all. Where do where do people where do people? Uh, they usually get them at Amazon. Okay, and and the website and, and JohnnyBowden.com. Cool. No no H and Johnny. Awesome. So sick of saying that. I tried to get J O H N N Y just to just redirect it. Yeah, redirect Somebody it. Stole Somebody stole that one. Son of a gun. You got to let it go, Johnny. Yeah, I've ordered it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, well, uh, thanks so much. This has been really fun. And con- uh, I, I do answer Twitter, so anybody who is so moved to reach me on Twitter, at Johnny Bowden, I, I almost always reply. Cool. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Let's uh, Thank you. go, I don't know, eat some more pomegranate juice. Let's go. Try to out some shoulders. All right.
Over now. Bow. Align Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Some ways that you can support this podcast, one of which you can pick up an Align band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band, comes along with a door anchor and a carrying case, and a video guide on how to mobilize those joints and integrate that body of yours. Really great stuff. You can be found at AlignTherapy.com and also on Amazon.com. Thank you also so much for utilizing the Amazon affiliate link on the right hand sidebar of the podcast page bookmark that thing anytime you purchase some crap on Amazon purchase that crap through that link we get percentage of it costs you nothing and I think that's enough thank you guys so much for reviews on iTunes thank you for listening thank you for supporting have a beautiful rest of your day peace